0: I would like to speak to you today about vaccines, both as one who has studied and taught immunology for most of my adult life, and as a citizen of the world. My interest in vaccine acceptance was piqued when I found that some of my daughter's friends were reluctant to vaccinate their children. In fact, one of them contracted measles on her honeymoon in Italy, having not previously been vaccinated. At the same time, the Los Angeles Times published an online database showing the percentage of students with measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination at each elementary school in the Los Angeles area. And I found that the the school to which my grandchildren belonged or or attended had only a 65% prevalence of MMR vaccination. So after several years of thinking and writing about the problem of vaccine coverage, I came to understand it from several points of view. And the first is that we human beings are the most diseased species on earth. And this comes not from some way of knowing the extent of disease for every species in existence, but rather understanding the epidemiology in recent human history. Our history over the last two to 3,000 years has included one epidemic after another. Epidemics that often killed or more of the population in any given region of the world and lasted decades or sometimes even centuries. But even this is a great underestimate of the effects of epidemic disease on human history. Since the dawn of history, we have been continually plagued by what Jared Diamond called crowd epidemic diseases. Until the latter part of the 20th century, most families lost children to smallpox, scarlet fever, pertussis, there were birth defects caused by rubella, occasionally children died from measles, and in other parts of the world, malaria still kills about 400,000 people per year, mostly children. This sort of epidemic disease was continuous for at least two millennia. Many more people died of these diseases than all the wars combined. And the question is, why? We're exceptionally intelligent as human beings, but why are we, as a species, exceptional with respect to the loss of life due to infectious disease? And the answer is, in a very short span of time, we human beings completely changed our ecology. We evolved as small, dispersed communities of hunter-gatherers, consisting of a few hundred individuals. But with time, We domesticated plants and animals and eventually people became situated and lived in permanent communities of much higher density. At the same time, we sampled all of the infectious agents to be found in cows and sheep and horses and goats and birds. Meaning we captured many infectious diseases from these animals, infectious diseases that were not evolved or if you will, tuned to human beings. So how does this affect infectious diseases in the modern world? So this is a short version of what we call human disease ecology. And the first uh, point is that pathogens found in low density populations are long lasting and exhibit low or infrequent tolerance. That is they exhibit low disease. You can imagine that this is because a pathogen that is too virulent would kill its host before it can be transmitted to the next host. And in low density populations, it takes a long time for diseases to be transferred from one person to another. Conversely, in high density populations, pathogens are able to be transmitted rapidly from host to host. And so there's no selection pressure to keep hosts mobile or even alive. And one metaphor for this could be a forest and the possibility of a forest fire. So if we consider an isolated stand of trees in a green meadow, this would pose no danger of a raging fire, just as an isolated band of hunter-gatherers posed no danger for a large-scale epidemic. Whereas for a dense, interconnected forest, one spark can ignite a holocaust, causing widespread damage that lasts a long, long time. Another point is that zoonoses are infectious agents that jump from one species to another. And as their virulence is unpredictable because they haven't co-evolved with their host, zoonoses are very dangerous. And examples being Ebola virus, Lassa fever, Hantavirus. They, They jump into the human population, Oftentimes, they only infect a few hundred people or a few dozen people um, and then they fade out of the population. And this was the case for Ebola virus until about 2014, where it evolved to be more infectious. And so now it can cause uh, epidemics. And the concept is that we human beings are not only culturally connected or genetically connected, Human beings worldwide are biologically connected in the present through our exchange of infectious agents and our common susceptibility to disease. We are more than simply individuals coexisting on the same planet. We are all hosts within a disease network of microbes and viruses. For example, as long as one person on earth harbored variola virus, which is the cause of smallpox, billions of people, the entire population of the world was at risk. Infectious diseases show the real-world consequences of individual actions on the community of humankind. So let's visualize this schematically. This is what the world looks like presently in the COVID-19 pandemic. Most people have not encountered the, the virus of the almost 8 billion people on Earth. Most have not contracted the disease. There are people, the the ones in red, that are infectious. And then there are a few people who have had the disease and we hope they are immune. We don't know that yet, but we're we're hoping that this is the case. Now, one way that this could end would be after a decades long pandemic in which you might argue you could encounter herd immunity. That is, most people have had the disease and are now immune and the disease starts to die out. Of course, it, it doesn't die out completely because there's always an influx of susceptible new hosts in the form of newborn children. And so this is how diseases typically go from being epidemic diseases to being childhood diseases, where most everyone gets the disease as a child and either dies or becomes immune. Now just yesterday, the Director General of the World Health Organization was quoted as saying, never in the history of public health has herd immunity been used as a strategy for responding to an outbreak. So rather than waiting for a decades-long epidemic for for this to decrease, we need a vaccine and we need an effective vaccine. So let me just go over very quickly what the types of vaccines there are and what types are being developed for COVID-19. The three types of vaccines that are currently licensed in the United States are whole inactivated virus, live attenuated virus, and subunit vaccines. The whole inactivated virus is similar to that that was developed by Salk for the polio virus. And it uh, is a uh, virus that is grown, it's the wild type virus, but it's inactivated chemically, usually with formalin. On the other hand, a live attenuated virus is an actual live growing virus, but it's been selected so that it doesn't cause disease. And examples of that are the MMR virus, the Sabin vaccine, um, the vaccine for shingles, the vaccines like that. And the third type is the subunit vaccine in which you make a uh, protein that comes from the virus, usually by recombinant DNA techniques, And you add to that something called an adjuvant. Now what's uh, been occurring over the last few years, and now it's been accelerated at warp speed, we're told, are the development of new types of of vaccines. one of them is to use recombinant viral vectors. These are vaccines in which an innocuous virus, perhaps adenovirus, has been genetically modified to encode one little part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and so an individual would be infected with the adenovirus and make an immune response that would include an immune response to this uh, a, a portion of the COVID-19 uh, or the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Another is to use DNA or RNA directly that's encapsulated, usually with an ellipsid lipid nanoparticle, this type of a vaccine then turns your own cells into a factory for producing uh, viral products and then your immune system responds. What all of these vaccines have in common is the ability to provoke an inflammatory response, which is redness, swelling, heat, a little bit of pain. And this is actually needed to initiate a production of long-lasting immunity. None of these agents are intrinsically toxic, but the temporary discomfort that they produce is the result of the onset of an immune response. When your arm is sore after an influenza vaccination, that's because your immune response is actually uh, working. And finally, for this, um, we can again rely on um, Tony Fauci, who said that finding an effective vaccine to prevent the infection with SARS-CoV-2 is an urgent public health, priority. So once we make a vaccine, how do we know it is safe? Well, there are a lot of means in place to, to ensure for this. And the first is that the Food and Drug Administration analyzes the clinical data to ensure that there is safety. And in clinical trials for vaccines typically include tens of thousands of patients, half of whom get a placebo and half of whom get the uh, vaccine. And both the safety and efficacy of the uh, vaccine under under study is then analyzed. It's only when that is determined to be safe is it then released for general public vaccination. Most of the um, time, most of the potential for um, clinical adverse effects are found at this stage before it ever gets to general public vaccination. Next, the um, CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the FDA maintain uh, a nationwide monitoring system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which allows anyone to report an adverse reaction, either online, by fax, or by mail. Probably the fax is a little outdated at this point, but by online or by mail. There's also um, a program that's that's carried on between the CDC and U.S. healthcare organizations that track the data from millions of people who receive vaccines and then are monitored for their health. And finally, there's the uh, National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which receives reports of adverse vaccine reactions, studies each claim, and then decides whether or not there's a possibility that an adverse reaction occurred uh, based on, on vaccination. So for example, from 2006 to 2018, over 3.7 billion doses of covered vaccines were distributed in the United States. There were 7,400 petitions um, for adverse reactions and 5,000 were compensated. So about one in a million vaccine dose results in a compensated uh, adverse reaction. For measles, mumps, and rubella, there were about 108 million doses administered, and from those 108 million doses, 259 adverse reactions were filed, and 128 were compensated. Again, um, about a million, one in a million doses, um, it results in an actual adverse reaction. So let me close by saying that. Our modern, interconnected, densely populated world is only possible because um, of, of large-scale vaccine programs. The difficulty is that we, as we approach herd immunity in a region, everyone is protected, and thus there's a tendency to feel that vaccination is unnecessary. But I want to say that we remain protected only if the vast majority of the population realizes the importance of community participation in our common immunity to disease. So thank you very much for your attention.